book of Daniel for the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue up to Advent, and then we maybe uh, we'll wrap it up a little bit after Advent, just because um, we have a guest speaker next week. And actually, just so you're all aware, uh, next week we'll be meeting in the French church just across the street, same time, and uh, a guy named James Bultima, who some of you may know, he has been a pastor in Antalya, Turkey for, I want to say, 25 years. And uh, is that about right, 25 years? 30 years, yeah, a real long time. And uh, James and Renata Boltzema are really good friends of ours, and he'll be teaching next week. Um, so please invite you to come and hear about what the Lord's doing in Turkey right now, uh, despite what you may hear in the news. And so uh, we've been going through the book of Daniel, and uh, last week we talked about humility. Tonight we're going to talk about pride, um, which I'm sure none of us have an issue with. But we're going to do it anyways, just in case. Um, you, know, you may be seeing this as, as we've been reading through and studying Daniel. Uh, the book of Daniel ha- has a really interesting format. Uh, it's, it, it's a narrative, and it's a story, but it's also very planned out. And it tells a much bigger story uh, of God and what God is doing in the world. And tonight we have a little bit of a jump in the timeline, but I just want to address the structure for you in case you may have missed it or in case um, you haven't seen it or haven't been here. In, in chapter 1, chapter 1 we have sort of the beginning, where Daniel and his friends are brought to Babylon in exile. They are trained uh, in the language and the customs, and, and they're put in to serve in the, in the king's courts in Babylon. And then chapters 2, 3, and 4 sort of tell the story of these different things that are happening um, with the first dream and vision in chapter 2, with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, and then last week with Nebuchadnezzar eating grass in the field in chapter 4. And the next three chapters we're going to go through, 5, 6, and 7, actually mirror those. So it's a very similar story from another end to emphasize a point about what God is doing. Um, in, in studying the Bible, we call this a chiasm, where the structure is basically A, B, C, C, B, A. And so right now we're studying the counterpart to last week. Um, which is pride. And last week we talked about humility, so this week uh, the focus is on pride. And, and the amazing thing about Daniel is then after uh, these next three chapters where we're going to study as we go into the end where it talks about the, the future and when God will rule and how God will rule and it will be a very wonderful, wonderful study. And so tonight we have a, another amazing event that takes place, uh, another miracle and God doing some weird things that we're going to talk about. So just to give you a little bit of background on chapter 5, we're not going to read it all. Um, so forgive me, you can go back and read it uh, in your own study. Uh, in the first 16 verses, basically what happens is this. The king has a huge party. But if you read, it's, it's not Nebuchadnezzar, this king that we've known so far in the story. It's a new king. It's a guy named Belshazzar. And we don't know a ton about him. Uh, he references Nebuchadnezzar as his father. He may have been... A cousin, he may have been an uncle, he, he may have just been a part of the royal family, um, but we have a new king. And, and it says in the text that he decides to throw this big party. He decides to throw this huge party where the, you know, there's all of these officials are there and all of these powerful people are there. And if you remember in chapter 1, actually it's in verse 2, the very beginning of Daniel, it says that when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel, conquered Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom of Judah, he took a lot of the stuff out of the temple, all of the gold and the silver, and he took those things out of the temple and put them in the temple of his gods. And here it comes back into the story in chapter 5, where this new king, this new younger king, comes in and says, we're going to have this huge lavish party. 
And then he decides, hey, this would be a great thing to do. Let's take these gold and silver vessels from this, this, this God of the Israelites and let's drink wine out of them and get drunk. And so they do this. It says that they all drank from these holy vessels, but instead of using them for worship as they were intended, the text tells us that they then worship gods of stone, wood, bronze, iron, silver, and gold. Things that God, as we know, expressly forbids. And so while using these vessels from Solomon's temple, they were worshiping false gods, they were having this lavish party. And then, just as this happens, something amazing happens. A hand appears. A hand appears and begins to write a message on the wall. And all the people are terrified. It actually says in the text that they turned white. They were terrified. The the, the king and the people all sort of were just in shock. And so as with other visions, the king says, hey, who can tell me what this means? Why has this happened here? Why has this happened now? Anyone who does will be awarded as the third ruler in the kingdom, given a gold chain around their neck and a purple robe. They will be lifted high. And the queen actually comes. The queen comes to the party because she heard the shouts and the screams. And the queen says, hey, um, Belshazzar, there is this guy in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom named Daniel, one of the Hebrew people. And he was really good at this stuff. Maybe we could find him and ask him. And so Daniel comes and is offered this great reward to interpret the dream, which is where we're going to pick up, or interpret the writing on the wall, which is where we're going to pick up the story. I want you to notice this, though. You know, what's amazing about this story is that this queen and then Daniel, who used to be a really, really high rank, is some, for some reason not invited to this party. And it gives us this sort of image that this was not a state dinner. This was not a dignitary event. This was a young king throwing a lavish, lavish party. And the queen, who had some sense, Daniel, who obviously had some sense, did not go or were not invited. And so they bring Daniel here, and after offering Daniel his reward, we start our reading in Daniel chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 17. It says this, Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God, give your father, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. And those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate the grass like the cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you, your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God which holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, teko, parsing. And this is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign 
and brought it to an end. Tekel, that you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. In Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, so here we have this story. And Daniel says, starting out in verse 17, Hey, don't worry about your reward. That's not why I'm here. I'm here as I've always been to just tell you what God is trying to tell you that you are too dense to understand. And he starts actually by talking about his predecessor. He starts by talking about King Nebuchadnezzar before he interprets the writing on the wall. And he says, listen, your predecessor, your, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, worshipped and humbled himself before God. He, he, he took him a while, but he eventually realized that he was the God of gods and the kings of kings and finally bowed down and worshipped him. And then in verse 22, he says, but you have not done this. And what's amazing to me, what's amazing is this line which I've titled this service or this sermon, you knew all this, is that Daniel says to him, to Belshazzar, but you, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You know, he knew what was going on. He had heard these stories of Daniel interpreting these dreams. He had probably even seen Nebuchadnezzar repent and change his life around as a young man getting ready to rule in his, in his place one day. But he chose to not humble himself before God, but to act in his own way. As it says in verse 23, but you in fact have done the opposite. You've set yourself up against this God as an enemy of this God and mocked him by taking the things out of his temple and using them for things that are not their purpose. See, God is really interesting to me in a lot of ways. And it's amazing how God sort of holds those who know things to a little bit of a higher standard. You know, in Romans chapter 1, it says that we've all seen the glory of God. I mean, we're in Switzerland, right? On a sunny day, just look that way. You know, you see the mountains, you see the glory of God, right? But, But there's a certain level to where God, as we read in the book of James, gives grace to those who come to him in humility, Right? And, and this king, Belshazzar, however he grew up, maybe he grew up and Nebuchadnezzar was teaching him about the God of Daniel and teaching him about justice and teaching about worship, and he decided when he became king to want nothing to do with it. We don't know. But this is a problem. This is a big problem for God that, that this king, this ruler, knew better and said, I still don't care. And so because of it, in verse 24 through 28, it says, your days are numbered. This is what the hand wrote on the wall, that your days are going to be numbered. That you have been weighed in the balance. You've been weighed on the scale of justice, right? And, and it's, it's, it's come up short. And your kingdom will be divided. The Babylon will fall. This great, mighty kingdom that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, built that we talked about last week, that he was so proud about. The city walls and the hanging gardens and all of the, the, the expanse of the kingdom would be divided and would fall apart. And here we have, in this text, yet another vision, another story of God being in control. That even though we fear earthly rulers, even though we wonder sometimes what they're doing, God is very clearly yet again saying, I am the one who brings these people up and can bring these people down. 
the theme continues throughout the book. And so in verse 29, because he interpreted this, Daniel's rewarded. Though as we read in verse 30, it's, 30, it's very short-lived. As soon as he's lifted up as the third highest ruler in the kingdom, it says that very night Belshazzar was killed. And we don't know the details, right? This isn't a biography. We don't, we don't know all the details. We don't know if it was like a secret coup and, and, and the country slowly was divided and fell apart over many months. We don't know if there was a big army on the outside of the walls and that night they, they, they came in. Um, there's tradition that says that when Cyrus overtook the great city of Babylon that they, uh, they, they dammed the river and snuck under the wall and, and, and got into the city that way one night. We don't know. But we do know without all the chronological information that God very clearly said to this king, to this ruler, you have opposed me. You have done the exact opposite of what I have told you to do. And therefore your time is up. And I wonder when I read this sometimes, why do we have these stories over and over again? Why do we have these stories in Daniel over and over and over again that just seem really repetitive? Okay, a king challenges God. God shows him that he's God and that the king is not. And then we move on. Why so familiar? You know, what are we here to learn from all of this? Especially if this chapter 5 mirrors chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar repenting and Belshazzar dying, this is where we begin to see why this story is in here, right after one so similar. We see, well, first of all, let me just break down some of the things we can learn from this. Three things, actually. The first thing is if you look at Daniel's life up to this point, He's got some high highs and some low lows. And, and, and two weeks when we study Daniel chapter 6 might be one of the lowest. But first he's exiled from his home. He's, he's driven all the way across, the, up and over the desert to Babylon. He's, he's forced to learn a new language. He's forced to live in a new culture. He's forced to eat a new diet, which he resists and wins. He's tested in chapter 2 not only his faith, but his wisdom and his ability. He rises to great power through great faith. But then, somehow, some way, ends up falling out of favor, does this amazing thing, is favored again, but as we know, it's probably only for about a day, because he falls back out of favor. In chapter 6, we know that that's the whole Daniel in the lion's den thing, so this new leader, Darius, decides that, you know, he needs to go in the lion's den. And the first thing I want to point out, as we learn through all of Daniel, but especially here in this passage, is that for us, for you, and for me today, it is not easy to follow God all the time. Okay? And I know I say that a lot, and sometimes I'm a little bit negative, but, but we need to remember, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, the cost of being a disciple, Luke chapter 14, that we need to count the cost. When he gives the parable of how foolish it would be for a builder to not count the cost before he tries to build his house, it is not easy to follow God. And even for a mighty man like Daniel, who was filled with great wisdom and great service and a servant's heart, it was difficult. Ups and downs, highs and lows. And then the second thing I want to show through this passage for us is that again, we see God being very active in the politics of the world. We know that God raised up this Babylonian empire. We know that he used this Babylonian empire to judge both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah in the Old Testament. And we know that God brings Babylon back down through this text and raises up the Assyrians, who that kingdom would then, if you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, that kingdom would then allow them to go back and rebuild the temple, and God is constantly working in the political structure of this world. 
Because God will eventually rule in the end. And so we have nothing to fear. Even for us now, when it feels like leaders around the world are losing their absolute minds. I mean, it's almost like it doesn't even matter, right? We, uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things about taking German classes is I meet people from all different countries, Europe and, and, and Middle East and stuff, and I can't tell you how funny it is when people, or, or some of my friends who aren't Christians who don't go to this church, ask me about being an American, our leader. You know, and some of them have really bad leaders too, and, and can sort of commiserate, right? I was with, um, I had, I had an, uh, an Iranian girl in my class, and she was really funny. It was just a couple of weeks ago when the whole, uh, yeah, anyways, the whole thing happened with Trump and Iran and all these different things and sanctions and talking about all these things. And she just sort of was like, hey, we don't like our leader either. It's okay. You know, we're not proud of what we've done either. It's okay. There's going to be a new one. It's going to change. We'll be all right. The Iranian people are still good people. American people are still good people. You know, I don't, I don't hate other people like, like some people would make you think. And, and even though it seems like and maybe you come from one of these really stable Western European countries. Good for you. You know, I just, if, if you come from one of these countries, of course, of course some of our good friends, in the, the worst leader, Matt and Hannah, the, the best thing is just to poke fun at the Brits for Brexit. I mean, that's just so easy. But it feels like sometimes the world is losing its mind. And we wonder what in the world is happening. Look at this text. Read through the Old Testament. See how God raises these kingdoms up and brings these kingdoms down. And if you remember the original vision from Daniel chapter 2, that there will be a rock from heaven, a mountain from heaven that will come down and knock them all down and be there forever. So yes, the first thing, following God is not always easy. But the second thing is that God is very active. And that as we worry and fear about the future and our futures, we can trust that in the end, it will be God who reigns forever. The third thing, and maybe the most important for tonight, is this. We see that God is very, very concerned with righteousness, with oppression of people, and true worship in the heart. You know, if you look back to Israel, to Judah, to Babylon, all of these kingdoms actually fall for these reasons, that they are not worshiping God and that they are oppressing people. If you remember just the last story we talked about, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar he needed to stop oppressing his people. He needed to stop oppressing people and start worshiping God. The, the, the prophet Amos told the Israelite people, I hate your empty worship. He said, I hate it. It's empty and it's dumb and it's stupid. Just stop doing it. He said, let justice roll down. See, see, the thing that God's really caring about is not necessarily what kingdom is on top, what kingdom is serving. What God cares about in our hearts and in our actions is that we are worshiping him with our heart. Like in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. That we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth and that our actions, like this last song we sang by Gunger, our actions are helping those who are oppressed and are downtrodden. This is what God got so mad about. And so in this party, we have this, this king, Belshazzar, not turning from his evil ways like Nebuchadnezzar did, probably oppressing his people and doing things that really made God mad, and on top of that, idolatry and using the articles of God for their, not their intended purpose. And it's the same reason that Israel eventually went into exile, and it's the same reason the Babylonian kingdom eventually falls. Because Belshazzar knew about God. He knew better. He had seen what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. 
And Daniel says to him in verse 22, You knew all this. Why did you still act this way? You knew all this. You know, last week with humility, we talked about how only restoration can only come through humility before God. And here we see what happens when there is no humility before God. Here we see what happens when there is no restoration. When we decide to stay and say, no, I want it my way and be proud about it. And this obstinate, arrogant pride we see in this king leads to exactly where you think it would. In verse 23, I love what Daniel says. It's not just harsh judgment. Look at verse 22 and 23. He says, even though you knew all this, instead you have set yourself up against the Lord as an enemy. And in the last line in verse 23, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. So he's saying, you set yourself up as an enemy while God is sitting there trying to care for you. You set yourself up as an enemy while God is trying to keep you safe. This is what pride does. When we stand and think we know better than God, we're saying to God, I don't want you to help me. I don't want you to love me. I don't want you to care for me. Let go of me. Saying you've rejected this God who's trying to care for you. Where does this come from? humanity, what what is inside of us that makes us want to do this? We talked about it a little bit last week with the original sin and how we wanted to take from God, but let me just run down some of the things where pride comes from and why we do it. You know, sometimes we think of, we'll we'll be good if people see us as virtuous, right? You know that word virtue? Our, our, Our good deeds, and then we can be good, that we can be prideful based on all the good deeds we do. That's great. Or or maybe we get prideful because we want to diminish the shame and the guilt of the bad things we've done. And so we do good deeds and then we carry ourselves on those good deeds so that no one sees the bad, right? No, no, focus on me and all the good things I'm doing and don't look at what's in secret. A lot of us do that. Or we use our own successes to cover up our pain and our guilt from the past and never really address it the way God wants us to do, also with humility. Or maybe we're continually living in sin. We're continually living in secret, doing things we know we should not do. And so we continue to do good things so that people just look at that. And we, we, we get a sense of pride out of that, thinking they'll never find out. God will never find out because look at all these wonderful things I'm doing and he'll never find out about this stuff. Or we desire others to praise us for our virtues. And so we take advantage of that. And we act in a good way to manipulate others into thinking we're better than we are. And all of these things, no matter what we do, are in opposition to this idea of God holding us in his hands. Sure, pride can be positive. We can have confidence in our hard work. I think confidence is a good thing. We can have confidence in in our efforts. We can have confidence in our ability. But pride can also be a negative because it often comes with comparison to others, right? say this all the time, well, at least I'm not like that person. And man, does that make me feel good. You know, again, watching the, the world leaders is just a great example. At least I'm not like that person. But see, what happens is then, is when we do that, it becomes a vice. And it becomes something we rely on. And it leads to this narcissistic self-inflation where we're constantly needing to compare ourselves to others rather than just trust that what God has for us is best. And for the Christian, just like this man, you know better than this. 
You, we, if we believe in Jesus Christ, if we believe Jesus Christ died and rose again on the, after the third day of the cross, we have a compass pointing to Jesus. We know there is a God and that this God has revealed himself to us in Christ. And that to be redeemed from our sin, we have to go in humility and not in pride. That the goal is holiness and confidence in the hope of glory that one day God will reign forever and that what happens on this earth is only temporary. And this pride that we all have inside of us which keeps us in submission and in opposition to God, relying on ourselves, must be put before God as well. You know, pride, when I think about it, it just reminds me of this. You ever been really thirsty? I mean, just really thirsty. Whether you went on a hike and you just didn't take enough water, whether you just didn't plan ahead, whether and just something comes up and you think, imagine that if you went to take a drink and you had water that never quenched your thirst and you were always thirsty, how horrible that would be. When I think of pride, this is what I think of is that we're constantly trying to quench something inside of us, but because of our pride and because we refuse to hum- hum- humble ourselves and give it to God, it, no matter what we do, whether we worship, uh, whether we praise, whether we pray, whether we try to do all these things, but until we address the pride in our heart, we wonder why this feels like we're never getting our thirst quenched. And it's because oftentimes as Christians, we are hanging on much too tightly to our virtues and our good deeds. We have placed way too much importance on thinking that we are better than others or thinking that our good deeds will help us and save us. I want to show you this quote. I shared a quote um, from an old monk a little while ago, and and I'm going to share another one with you because I love it. Imagine two chariots, or cars. Okay, cars. (laughs) Imagine two chariots. Harness virtue and pride to one, sin and humility to the other. You will see the chariot drawn by sin outstrip that of virtue. To understand why one of these vehicles is faster than the other, remember the Pharisee and the publican. One relied on his own righteousness, on his own fasting and the tithes that he paid. The other needed to say only a few words to be free of all of his sins. That was because God was not only listening to his words, he also saw the soul of him who spoke them. In finding it humble and contrite, he judged him worthy of his compassion and love. And that is precisely what Christ wanted to demonstrate when he said, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it is that he calls to us. Let us not keep our distance. If our sins are countless, that is the more reason for going to him. For we are the sort of person he is calling. In fact, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He is called the God of consolation, of mercy, because unceasingly he consoles and encourages the unfortunate ones and the afflicted, even if they have committed thousands of sins. Let us then be content to surrender and go to him and never to leave him. Isn't that good? Let's not rest in virtue and pride and think that's what's going to take us to the end. No, let's go to God in our sin, in the midst of our crap, and in humility and say, God, take it. I need help. The world is desiring and looking for this sort of pride to fill them up, but in reality what it does is it keeps them from God. And we as Christians, if we seek humility in the midst of our sin before God, then our example shows the world that they do not have to have it all together, but just go to God honestly, with a pure heart. It is much better to live in honesty and humility in the midst of our sin and wear our sin on our sleeves than to pridefully hide our sin and attempt to live on good deeds. 
Any one of you who has tried to live solely on your good deeds and hide your sin, know it's miserable. Because Christ is the only way that brings us forgiveness and healing. He's the only way that brings us restoration. He's the only way that we can find confidence in the hope of glory for a better future from God. And that confidence comes in the assurance of the hope that God gives us, that he will reign forever. That no matter what kingdom rises or falls, that God will be on the throne and we will be there worshiping him. Arrogance and pride comes from worldly wisdom. Read James 4 again, our New Testament reading. You can read that every day and it will help. It leads to disunity, abuse of one another, fighting, quarreling, divisions, oppression. Those things that God hates so much, that brought down Israel, that brought down Babylon, oppression and empty worship. But you, church, you know all this. Belshazzar knew God and chose to oppose him, even as God held him in his hands. So now think, God is here holding you in his hands, saying, you are my son, you are my daughter, whom I love. What will you do? Will you rest on your good deeds and your virtue and your pride? And stand in opposition to this God who is so tenderly trying to care for you? Or, in your humility, will you acknowledge your sin? Will you say, I cannot do this alone? And trust that what God has for you is best. And that it will lead to not only restoration for your soul, but caring for others, caring for your neighbor, caring for your family that doesn't know Jesus, caring for your friends that don't know Jesus. That it will lead to true, honest worship in your heart that pleases God. And instead of leading to oppression of others, leads to love and care for others. Church, we are in this together, all of us doesn't matter what sphere of life you are in, if you are in primary school or if you are retired. It doesn't matter if it's with your family, with your relationships, with work, even here at church. We together must turn from our pride and go to God in humility because if we go in the midst of our sin and humility, we will outrun anyone who rests on their virtues and on their pride. So church, let us turn from our pride. Would you please pray with me? Lord God, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for offering restoration for each of our hearts. I thank you that even when we set ourselves up in opposition to you, you still hold us tight and keep us safe, waiting for us to come home like the father in the parable of the prodigal son. Lord, would you reveal our pride to each of us? Lord, would you reveal those dark corners of our heart where pride has crept in and we have kept it secret? Lord, make us uncomfortable that we would go to you in the midst of our sin and humility, knowing that the more sin we have, Father, the more times we should be coming to you over and over. Lord, let us not be a church that rests on our virtues and our abilities, Father, but on your love, your grace, and your compassion that we would share those attributes with this world. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, I want to invite our musicians back up, and please take the